You know, I was sitting in an uh, Italian restaurant in California with extended family all around me. And then it happened. Somebody brought up politics. Okay, here we go. You've probably been there at some point in the last two years. The location might be different. The people sitting around the table might be different. But it's the same situation. And there are some people at the table who absolutely love Donald Trump. And there are some people at the table that absolutely hate him. And that moment of light conversation that you were having before is now gone. And emotions are on edge. And people are angry. How do we live as Christians in a polarized society? How do we interact with subjects that everybody cares so deeply about and are so emotionally charged? How would Esther handle these conversations in the ancient culture of Persia? How would Daniel handle these conversations in the ancient culture of Babylon? Oh, if I were there, I'd be concerned about a couple of things. I want to be obedient. I want to follow God. I don't want to compromise. So I want to be obedient as a follower of God. But I also want to make a difference. I want to influence my culture. I don't just want to be here and be obedient to God, but not make any difference. I want to influence my community. I want to make a difference for the kingdom of God. In other words, I want to be faithful in Christ and I want to be winsome to culture. You know, winsome's a word we don't use a lot. Pastor Scott gave a great definition of it a couple weeks ago when he said it's appealing, attractive, compelling, engaging. How do we be people that are this? In the midst of conflicts that exist so much in our world today. I absolutely love this series that we're in. That we started with the kingdom of God and spent a number of weeks where Pastor Scott took us through the kingdom of God. And what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And it seems like this next part is sort of an application of that. Where we're looking at the life of Esther and the life of Daniel and interweaving those together. To look at what it is like to live as believers. As people who are part of the kingdom of God in a culture that doesn't care as much about the kingdom of God. And today we're going to see a great example of Daniel being faithful to the kingdom of God. Faithful to Christ. While at the same time being winsome to culture. Today we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1 verses 8 through 21. If you want to go ahead and turn there, if you have an electronic Bible, it'll be easy to find it. You just click on Daniel. If you have a paper Bible and you're not sure where it is, if you open your Bible to the middle, you're probably going to get to the book of Psalms. Then keep going to the right a little bit. You're going to pass by some big books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then soon after that, you'll get to the book of Daniel. Uh, We're going to be in Daniel 1, 8 through 21. If you want to turn there, and I'm going to catch up with you in a few minutes there. 
Remember where we're at in this book. Israel has been taken captive. And as Israel has been taken captive, they've come in and the Babylonians have conquered Israel because Israel had been disobedient. And so Israel's been disobedient, and, and they've been taken captive. And when they're taken captive, sometimes the Babylonians would come in, and they would leave people behind to, to stay in that land. And some people they would take, the best and the brightest, and they'd remove them back to Babylon with them. And that's exactly what they've done here. They came in, they took over Israel, and when they took over Israel, they said, you know what, we're going to get this great load of riches that we're going to have. We're going to have resources like gold and other um, valuables that are there. We're going to get their land. We're going to get their labor and their production. And the taxes we'll be able to charge because of that. We're going to have their talent. And some of the brightest and the best people around. And they could have, have just killed off the best and the brightest. Because if there was going to be any threat to them, the threat would be from the best and the brightest. Those are the people who are going to lead a revolution if they're going to do it. But instead, they decide this. Let's leave all the normal people there in Israel, but we're going to take the best and the brightest back with us. That's who Nebuchadnezzar takes back to Babylon. And you see here in Daniel 1.3, in the passage before the one we're looking at today, that the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the mobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And so here he had this group of people, and what he's going to do is he's going to take them and he's bringing them back, and he's bringing them back so that he, they, could, they could have this best of the best that they could turn for their own purposes. And they bring this group back and they give them new names. And Pastor Scott talked about that a couple weeks ago because their old names had, had names related to the gods of, of, of Israel and they wanted to get them away from that. So they gave them new names that had to do with the gods of the Babylonians. And today they're going to do a couple of things. We're going to see a new education program take place and we're going to see what they do with their diet and with their food. You see, the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. So this group isn't going to eat like everybody else. They're going to get the best food there is. And they're going to get the, the wine that the king drinks. And then they're going to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were going to stand before the king. So they're going to receive this education. And they're going to have this great food in the process. Let's think about this education for a minute. If you were to have a contest to find the most secular culture in the history of the world, the group that lived the most without God that's ever lived without God, the group that's the most anti-God environment you can have, Babylon would be your winner. Understand that in the book of Revelation, 
It describes things that are going to happen at the end of the end times. And there's a lot of dispute about how to interpret the book of Revelation and what it all means. But it's very clear that God's judging the world in the book of Revelation. And during that judgment at the very end parts of the book, he judges the nations and he judges culture. And when he does so, you know what phrase is used? Babylon. Babylon has fallen. And when he says that, the kings of the world start to cry. Because they have achieved their power based upon living their lives against God. And then the merchants start to cry. And the merchants start to cry because they've made great amounts of money based on living their life in a system that's opposed to God. You see, when God judges the world at the end, he doesn't say this superpower from the West somewhere has fallen. He doesn't say there's a great bear in the East and it's fallen. He doesn't say ISIS has fallen. He uses the phrase Babylon has fallen because Babylon was the worst of the worst. So Daniel and his friends are going to be enrolled in Babylon University. And when they're there, they're going to be taught the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Another word for the Babylonians. Understand that given who Babylon is, what they're doing for three years is a brainwashing operation. They are going there so that they can learn to think like a Babylonian thinks. That they could feel like a Babylonian feels. So that they could learn their occultic practices. They could learn how a Babil- what gods a Babylonian worships and how they worship them. They're going to learn Babylonian morals. They're going to learn Babylonian decision making. They want to in every way Make them Babylonians. You know, two of my favorite days every year are the 4th of July and Election Day. I love those two days. Understand, I was a political science major. I I went to law school after that. I I just love those two days. Fourth of July, um, I love the fireworks and the remembering back to, to what that's celebrating in the beginning of our country. And I've been at fireworks shows on the fourth of July at the Hollywood Bowl because my mom was trying to figure some way to get some culture into her boys. And so there'd be a concert and then fireworks. I've been at fireworks shows at baseball stadiums. That was my preferred method of getting culture. And I've been on friends' front decks watching fireworks shows throughout the Tri-Cities area where you can see all the shows. And I absolutely love the 4th of July because what it represents of the founding of our country. And I absolutely love Election Day. My wife and I will go to vote together and every time I'll say, I wish I was working here at the polls. I want to volunteer. If we are still voting um, personally, when I retire, you will see me there. 
because I absolutely love democracy and I love what it represents. I even like it if my candidate loses because of what it represents. And there's something just deep down inside of me where that's a part of who I am as an American. That's what they're trying to accomplish here. Whatever it is that is deep-seated within a Babylonian that just measures who they are, that brings a tear to their eyes of joy. That's what they want to accomplish here in these three years with Daniel and his pals. They don't just want them to think like Babylonians. They don't just want them to feel like Babylonians. They want them to absolutely become Babylonians. And there's two issues that they face. Do we eat the king's food? And do we go to Babylon U? And if we're going to go there, how do we interact? How do we make it happen? Here's the big idea today. To live as an and Christian. A Christian who's both trying to be obedient and trying to be winsome. We need to avoid compromise while skillfully engaging our community. To live as an and Christian, we need to avoid compromise while skillfully engaging our community. And as we go through this story today, we're going to see four dynamics to the story. And the first one is going to have to do with compromise. Daniel 1.5, which we already saw, said the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were going to stand before the king. So we see the two things that are happening here. They're going to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine. And then they're going to be educated. And they're going to receive this three-year education at Babylon University. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, give me the choice. Eat the king's food, drink the king's wine, or go be indoctrinated for three years. You know, I'm okay with the bacon-wrapped steaks, the baby back ribs, and the good wine. But I don't know if I want to go be indoctrinated for three years. Why does Daniel care about the food? You know, Israel was compromised. That's why they're in captivity. If they had been being obedient, they wouldn't have gone into captivity. They went into captivity as a punishment because they were compromising. So how much of the laws they knew? In fact, we have an Old Testament story at one point when Israel was in a compromising um, phase uh, of their history. And someone accidentally came across the Bible um, while they're, they're cleaning some back room. And they're like, oh, wow, did anyone know that this says this? It was like they were totally shocked when they found the word of God. There were times where, where, where because of the compromise, they wouldn't even know parts of what God's word said. So how much does Daniel really know about what's in God's word? You know, we're unsure of that. But Pastor Scott was right last week when he said, in the book of Daniel, we never see him compromise. So we know that he knows at least that much. And he obviously knows about the kosher dietary laws. He knew that they were a direct command from God. Even in times of huge compromise, this would be ingrained in Israel's mind. They cared 
about the kosher dietary laws. They live those. Now, the New Testament changes all this. After the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God makes it very clear that all food is clean. But Daniel lived long before that time. To a good Jew of this day, this is a big deal. Now, by the way, if you leave today thinking that the point of this passage is about some kind of Daniel diet that we should go on, that's not the point. There's books out there that will talk about it. Don't buy them. (laughs) That's not the point of the passage. In fact, we're going to see in a few minutes when we get into the text, you're, you're going to see that what Daniel asked to eat instead of the king's food is vegetables and water. That's not his preferred diet. He would prefer to have a full kosher meal, but there's no kosher deli down on the corner in Babylon. His only choice to be obedient is to find something within the food that he can eat. And so he goes for the vegetables and the water. I get why it's a big deal to Daniel. And I get why it's not a big deal to us today. My concern, though, is this. Why was I so opposed to the idea of going to Babylon University when Daniel jumps right into it? Let me suggest this. It's compromised to ignore the laws of God's word. It's also compromised to add laws to God's word. There was a change that happened in my Bible teaching a number of years ago. My previous way of teaching would have been to study the text to figure out what it says, to to try to apply it, um, to to figure out how it applies to me, to what my listeners are going to hear, and then to be able to teach based on that. And when I changed, I kept doing all those same things, but I added one piece. When I'd come to my study of my text, I would open up God's word and I'd ask a question as I was preparing. And the new question I asked was this. Where do I have this wrong? Where do my preconceived notions of this text have me misunderstanding it? Where is my knowledge of God wrong about this text? Because I realize something, I'm a product of my culture. I grew up as a white person in a middle class home in the United States where the American dream is part of our history and who we are as a culture. And all of those things impact how I interpret God's word. That's why I had to reread the passage. My understanding is impacted by my American worldview. You want to know if your culture impacts you? Let me do a quick test with you. Think, don't shout it out, just think, of the political party that you align most with. And I know the answer that about 85% of you are thinking. (laughs) Now, 
Just list in your head quickly some of the areas where your political party has it wrong. Because all political parties have some areas that they're wrong in. And if it's hard for you to think of anything, or if the first thing you thought is, oh, that's absolutely right, the opposing political party, let me tell you where they're wrong. No, 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 that wasn't the question. (laughs) Then that shows we're impacted by our culture. We view things through the lens of our culture and our experiences. And you see, staying faithful means we don't compromise on the clear commands of God. It also means we don't add commands and priorities to God's word. And you know what? If God is serious about something, he makes it abundantly clear in his word. A number of years ago, after preaching on a Sunday morning, and I was probably dressed even more up than I am dressed right now, but wasn't wearing a tie and wasn't wearing a jacket. And a man came up to me after church and wanted to explain to me some of why it's sin to teach God's word without a tie on. Somehow he tied it to the Ten Commandments, I think. (laughs) And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, why was that such a big deal to him? Well, it's because of his culture. It's of what he grew up in. It's what he was used to. Even though it's never mentioned in Scripture. And that's why I look at this because of my culture and my experience and who I am. And I look at this text and I say, I need to avoid Babylon University. And yet Daniel jumps right in. Compromise. We want to avoid compromise. The next question, should we engage? You know, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Scott asked a great question. He said this, um, or he made a great statement. He said this, you can be right, and you could be a jerk about it. Remember him saying that? Today, Daniel's going to show us how not to be a jerk. That's what we're going to look at in this passage. How well does Daniel do at Babylon University? The the section of scripture we're looking at has two main paragraphs. We're going to look at the second paragraph first. Then I promise you we'll come back to the first paragraph. And the second paragraph, starting in Daniel 1, 17, says this. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all the literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those last three names you probably know better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is just their other names. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Do you see what they do? They go to Babylon University and the picture you get here is at the end of the time, these four are the valedictorians of the class. They spend three years there and they're the best of the best when they're done. They don't just go put in their time. They are fully invested to what they're doing. They're the ones who in class are sitting in the front row. When the professor starts to engage them, they're engaging back. 
They're the ones talking about the material at lunchtime and at breaks. You know in the syllabus in college where they'll have, here's the required books, and then they'll have recommended reading, and, and it's on reserve at the library? Did anyone ever go to the library to read the recommended reading that you don't have to read? These guys did. They were 100% involved. Why do they do that? They do that because they want to engage their community. Remember when I said at the beginning, we want to be obedient to God, but we also want to make a difference. We want to impact our world. They wanted to impact their world. They wanted to engage their community. And to engage your community, you must understand your community. And to understand your community, you have to listen to your community. And as Daniel was standing there at the beginning deciding, should I eat this food and should I go to Babylon University? He realized that what he was being offered was an education on who the Babylonians are. He was receiving a tuition-free opportunity to be trained in how to influence his culture. Last week, Pastor Scott laid out a few options of how we can engage with our community. And he talked on the one side of just avoiding culture. Just totally avoid it. And the other side was we could get so immersed in it that we compromise. That we become like the culture. And that's a danger of what Daniel does. When you get involved that much that you're understanding it, it, it can lead to compromise if you're not careful. But the third stream in the middle, or if you think of the, um, the, the, the main slide that we have for this series with the two circles and they overlap, that part that overlaps there in the middle, it's to so skillfully engage your culture that you can transform it. And you want to see how the master does it? We're going to go back up to verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that the king drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. So he says, I I can't go there. I can't do that because of the kosher dietary laws. So he goes and he talks to the chief of the eunuchs and he says, can I please not eat this food? And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Remember that phrase that he gave him favor and compassion. So what did the favor and compassion lead to? Daniel says, I don't want to eat this food. He has favor and compassion. What does it lead to? It leads to this. The chief of the eunuchs said to him, I fear the Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the user of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So basically, he says, can I get out of eating the good food? And he has favor with him. And so the guy says, no, you cannot. How is that having favor with him? You know what I think the favor here with him is? He tells him what he's thinking. He explains to him what his concern is. He says, you know what? The king assigned this. And if I change it on my own and you fail... It's going to be my head. 
Here's why I can't do it, Daniel. He lets him hear exactly what his concern is. What's his concern overall? I'll fail at my job. The king's put me in this position. And if you don't do well, it's going to look bad on me. And if it looks bad on me, I might get fired. And in that culture, in that time, if I get fired, there's a good shot I'll be killed. So no, you cannot go to the vegetable diet instead of the diet that you were given before because the result of that might not go well for me. And you know, Daniel has to decide how's he going to respond now. And he ends up going, stepping away, taking a little time and coming back to, to someone else who, who's the next step down. And he listens to what he says. But you know how Daniel could have responded? He could have come back with an appeal to God's word. He could have said, but the Bible says this. It says, here's the food that you're supposed to eat. He could tell them how they're anti-God and that this is just part of how they're rebelling against God. But notice none of that would address any of these concerns that they have. See, if you're talking to someone who doesn't believe that the Bible is God's word, then appealing to God's word probably won't impact them. That's not what their concern is. Instead, Daniel tries a different tact. He listens to them. He tries to understand where they're coming from. He empathizes. With how Daniel responds to this, I think what he does here is this. He tries to put himself in their shoes. What's it like to be this guy? What makes him tick? What are his dreams? What are his fears? Asking what someone's fears are is a huge one because so many people are fear-driven. And he's receiving a three-year education in this. And so Daniel comes back around to him. And he says to the steward who the chief of the eunuchs had assigned to them. So this is another person he comes back to him. And he says this. Understanding their concerns and everything. He says, test your servants for ten days. Let us get vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter. And tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days. It was seen that they were better in appearance. And fatter in flesh. Than all the youths who ate the king's food. 10 days out of 3 years. Just take the first 10 days. And give us this food. And look, test us at the end of the 10 days. If it doesn't work. You still have 2 years 355 days to get us fixed. See he answers all their questions. He listens. He empathizes with what the guy's problem is. He comes back with a solution that will work with him. And it absolutely ends up working. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and they gave them vegetables and they got vegetables and water for three years. You know, I was thinking of areas where this applies and how to make this happen. When I was at Multnomah Seminary, uh, we wrote a lot of papers. And when we'd write a paper, we usually had four steps we had to go through to make that paper work. The first step is, after you figured out your thesis or what you were trying to say, the first step was to figure out who would disagree with this. 
And the first section of the paper would be, what's my opponent's point of view? The second step was to then criticize the opponent's point of view, point out the weaknesses. The third point was to present your own point of view. And the fourth point was application based on everything that you had just said. In that first section, when you were presenting your opponent's point of view, you had to do so in such a way that if your opponent read that paper, they would say, yes, this person gets me. You could have no attitude in there. You could have no false arguments in there. It had to be that solid and that clear. You know, 23 years and 364 days ago, I was standing at the front of the church waiting for the bride of my youth to come down that aisle. And if you're going to get to the point where you're going to celebrate 23 years and 364 days of marriage, at some point there's going to be some areas that you grow in. Remember, I'm a lawyer by training, and I had finished law school by that point. Um, I have the training in being a lawyer and how to talk like a lawyer and how to argue like a lawyer. And I remember early in my marriage, times where my wife would say to me at a time where things might be a little emotionally charged. She'd say, I'm not a witness on a witness stand. I'm your wife. Please talk to me like I'm your wife. And over time, we came across a method of communicating where if, if things were really charged and we needed to really be able to communicate and, and the emotions are involved, the first person would talk and the first person would share, you know, I feel this when you did this because. And then the second person would respond simply by repeating back what they hear them saying. You don't present your own things, you just respond back to what you heard them saying. And it would keep going back and forth until that person was absolutely sure that they've been heard. Absolutely sure that you really get what's going on there. It is an act of grace to listen to someone. Listen. To make them feel heard. To let them know you understand them. You know, my question a couple weeks ago was, how do I apply this? Where, where does this impact me? And as I was asking God that, I was realizing that there's times when I wrong someone. And I quickly go to one of two extremes. One is to defend myself. I didn't do that. It wasn't that bad. Well, you did this. The other extreme, the other tactic I take is a quick apology. Let's just apologize, get this over with. Sorry, I was wrong. And God was pointing out the last couple of weeks to me that both of those do not make the other person feel hurt. Both of those don't really get at why this person is struggling with what happened. 20th century theologian Paul Tillich said this, the first duty of love is to listen. The first duty of love is to listen. But you know, this applies everywhere. Think of politics today. Doesn't it seem like there's a whole lot of yelling and not much listening? 
After I had finished the sermon, someone pointed out to me that former pastor here, John Dickerson, had published an article this week in USA Today that dealt with a lot of the same issues we're talking about today. And so I went and read that article, and then I went down since I was online and looked at the comments on it. And as soon as I looked at the comments, everyone was just blasting away at each other in the comments. And I thought, did anyone even read the article that John wrote? Because it was just blasting away. Like I mentioned before, I, I love arguing. I remember as a teenager with my mom and she'd go say to do something. And to me, I would challenge and would argue a little bit. And we'd go through this conversation. And finally, she'd get to the point that she said, no, you're just going to do it because I'm your mother and I said so. And I walked away happy as can be. I didn't mind going to do whatever she wanted me to do. But if she had to pull out the I'm your mom card, that meant I won the argument. And so I was just happy as can be walking away with that. And I was thinking, what would Daniel do instead of how I might react if he was at that Italian dinner with my family? I think he'd listen. I think he'd try to understand. I think he'd step in the shoes of those who politically would have a different view than he does and would try to empathize. Understand this. Listening and understanding is not compromise. Listening and understanding someone isn't compromise. It's an act of grace to truly listen to someone. And I know I'm not doing it well if I could feel my blood pressure going up. In political discussions, most Christians engage the world with the same tactics that the world uses to engage them. You know what? There is an app out there that will help you learn how to communicate inappropriately. It will actually train you of how to be a bad communicator. If you want to get this app, you can download it. It's called Facebook. And I actually really enjoy Facebook because I have friends around the world and it helps me keep up on them. But the way Facebook's going to word if you want to be trained this way is you're going to gather a community. You're going to call them friends. And then someone's going to post something controversial and you're going to look at all the comments that follow. That's how not to do it. The blasting away that takes place, that's how not to do it. You know, I was thinking about next steps. And what I need to do as a result of this sermon. And the first one that I was thinking about is, I need to come humbly before God. If there's any area that makes my blood pressure go up, I need to realize, why is that going up, God? Why am I so intense on that? Why am I not willing to listen to somebody else? Maybe it's coming humbly before God and saying, I need to listen to my spouse more or or a relative. Maybe it's how I interact with people politically in this world. I have to sometimes ask myself the question, have I cared more about winning an argument than being winsome to others? Ouch. Second step. I need to listen to somebody this week. And you know in that process, maybe when I truly try to listen to someone this week, Maybe I don't even need to share my point of view. Maybe it will happen down the line, but maybe in that conversation they just need to be heard and I just need to practice doing that because we we, we don't do that much. Daniel listened for three years. Later he got to speak into the king's life and we're going to see that in other passages. 
Maybe I just need to let someone be heard. And the third step, what's your one area? Where have you not been winsome in your conversations with others? Where have you been more about your rights or winning or arguing than truly listening and being ready to be able to engage with your culture? You know, family is one of the toughest areas to make all this happen. Isn't the people closest to us the hardest area to, to any of the application of our faith? As I close, let me introduce you to a family that's struggling to figure out how to make all this happen. Back it up one for me, please. I want to introduce you to Brad and Drew Harper. Brad's the one without the hat and without the hair. He's the dad. Drew's the son. Brad grew up in a conservative home, conservative Christian home. He loves the Bible. He loves theology. He knew from an early age he wanted to be a theologian. He went to Biola University. He went to Talbot Seminary, both conservative schools. He believes very solidly in in what we would believe in as theology. He believes in the morals that you'd expect from a conservative Christian church. He went to St. Louis for 13 years, got his Ph.D. there, also was a pastor of a church for those years. And then he went to Multnomah Seminary, and he was getting there right around the time I was graduating. So I really didn't know him much, just said hi and that, and he's been teaching there throughout that time. Sitting next to him is his son, Drew. Drew is gay. Can you imagine... What it's like to be in that family. They could have chosen to just blast away at each other. To not try to understand each other. And if so, they probably wouldn't have a relationship. Drew probably wouldn't be calling him today if that was the case. They could have just chosen not to discuss the issues that are behind all this. And just let it be the elephant in the room nobody's ever discussing. Drew lives in New York. He's very active in the gay community. He's a leader in writing and being involved in that. These two decided to write a book to explain their history together. It's called Space at the Table. Let me tell you this. If you are looking for a book where you fully agree with everything that's written, this probably isn't the book for you. You will find something with which you disagree if you read this book. But the entire book is their attempt to explain empathy. How they were trying to step in each other's shoes. How they were trying to understand each other. And at one point... Brad writes this. What I finally started saying to Drew was this. Drew, I'll come to you as far as I can come. But don't ask me to violate my conscience. Because if I violate my conscience, I degrade myself. Can you take it one more for me, please? And I'm no good to either. Because then none of it matters because it's not real. So he basically said, I can't compromise what I believe in deeply. 
but I'm trying to empathize. I'm trying to understand who you are. I want to have a relationship with you. And it took Drew a while to respond to that because what Drew really wanted his dad to say was, whatever you're doing is okay with me. I agree. And Drew finally came back to his dad and said, okay, dad, I'm just going to have to live with all you can give. There's an introduction to this book and there's dedications. And one of the dedications is Brad writing to his wife. And he says this. First, to my beloved wife, Robin, who's been with Drew and me. Back it up one for me. There we go. Drew and me for the whole journey. Sometimes you walked beside me and listened and loved. Other times you stood between us. One more. And called us back to sanity and fairness when we were taking verbal swings at each other. You bear the marks of those battles. I love that introduction because it shows how raw this is. It shows the battle this is within that family. You know, I thought about not using this story. I thought about not talking about politics. And I haven't preached in three years, and this is where I go. (laughs) But doesn't this get exactly where the issue is? Where the struggle is to engage our culture? To be winsome? yet to remain faithful to that which we believe. We're going to sing in a minute a song, O Come to the Altar, and I love the line in here that says, Have you come to the end of yourself? And I love that line because when I think about engaging my culture, there's so many times when I feel like it's beyond me, that I've come to the end of myself, I don't know if I could do it well. And where I need to come to the altar and say, I've come to the end of myself, God. And if I'm going to do this well, it's only because of you working throughout me. It's only because of the Holy Spirit in my life. It's only because of what Jesus is doing through me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. We want to be people of obedience and we want to be people who are winsome who impact our culture in the name of Jesus Christ and we pray God as we wade into some challenging subjects that you would help us to think with grace and with love And a step forward, trusting in you for what you're going to do in our lives and the lives of those around us. May we be people who impact our culture. In your name. Thank you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.